Fantastic. Great to be with you. Um, now, uh, a few years ago, um, Jody and I, my Jody, my wife and I, caught a late flight um, into Singapore. Uh, it was a very busy and hectic schedule leading up to it. We flew straight from a wedding reception in Perth uh, to Hong Kong, had to have a meal with my extended family, who then dropped us straight back to the airport after that dinner to catch a late night flight into Singapore. And so we went from a wedding reception to a dinner in Hong Kong to landing in Singapore at 1 a.m. in the morning, and we arrived so very tired. Um, I remember getting into the airport and out, remembering that, hey, our combination doesn't open till 6, so what are we going to do? We are tired, we, it's been a long night, um, maybe we'll catch some shut-eye while we're here at the airport. And so we're wandering through the airport going, where, is, where could we possibly get some sleep? Uh, we found a, a lounge, we had these lounge passes, and we kind of wandered through, and there really wasn't anywhere to sleep in the lounge for some reason. Uh, we walked a little bit further into the airport, and we found these really, really cool sleeping pods. Who's seen sleeping pods before? They're like these like almost egg-type shells, and you sit in them, and they close, and they play like really peaceful jazz music to help you fall asleep or something. So we're going to do that, and then we realized they charge like stupid amounts per minute uh, to sleep in these sleeping pods. So we're like, all right, that's a no-go either. And so what we ended up doing... Um, was, you know, we decided just to push through. Uh, we headed out, we caught a taxi, uh, and we'd spent our first day of hawker stall chowing in Singapore, walking like zombies after pulling an all-nighter. Now, why do I mention this random story? Uh, because I think this random story, <clears throat> imperfectly, obviously, shows uh, something that is true for so many of us. Not that airports are difficult to find places to sleep, as much as that's probably true, but that true rest, true rest in reality is hard to come by. That true rest is hard to come by. All you've got to do, you just speak to young parents, right? The first thing they might often say is that they just crave a good night's sleep. But it's not just them. You speak to older folk and they wish that their bodies wouldn't just wake them up after four hours of sleeping. And even for those who might get good sleep, the lives that we often live are just so busy. They're so fast-paced, aren't they? Right? Many of us could work just about any hour of the day these days. We're constantly exposed to the ebbs and flows of news, the demands of life, the latest deadlines, the newest problem to solve. Our minds and thoughts can wander to what feels like hundreds of different places every day. And as you look over the course of a year, everything can just kind of bleed together, can't it? Into like this blurry exhaustion of feeling consumed. And if we're honest, no amount of hobbies, exercise, holidays, sleep, or binging Netflix, as relieving and restful as they are temporarily, gives us that true rest, does it? Now, this might be a little heavy-handed for a start of a message. But if that yearning for true rest resonates with you, um, the answer that God of the Bible gives to that yearning and the reason he gives for that yearning and why we crave those things is that those desires and those cravings for true rest stem from a deeper spiritual reality. That we want a rest that only he can provide. Now, what does that rest look like? Well, this is the rest of experiencing His presence. To being able to know and be known by Him. To experience the goodness of life as He intends. It's only in this place, the Bible says, that we find true rest. 
As one theologian famously put it, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in who? In him. And so we're going to explore what entering that rest looks like today as we continue to explore the book of Joshua. Because in a very real sense, uh, the ancient people of God have been yearning for rest as well. They have been yearning for rest not just for a few days or weeks or months or even years. In actual fact, they have been without rest for over 400 years. It's been over 400 years since the father of their nation, Abraham, was promised that they would inherit a land and return to being at rest. That they would have a resting place, a land of promise where they could stop wandering, where they could stop fighting, where they could return to the safety and provision of being God's people under his blessing to truly, in other words, rest. And so I want to say today that the experiences of the ancient people of God and their restlessness, and maybe our restlessness, it's not that far off. And so as we come to these two chapters, um, we meet this ancient people finally getting ready to enter this much anticipated promised land of rest. And as we wrestle with their journey and we see their journey, I believe that there is much wisdom and truth for us to consider in our search for true rest as well. So here's the outline for today, if you haven't got it up already. Um, there's two points. Point one, uh, we are, uh, point one is entering, um, entering his rest is received. And point two, remaining in his rest needs remembering. Entering his rest is received. Remaining in his rest needs remembering. Why don't you pray with me? Heavenly Father, be with us as we look at your word today. Um, help us to... Um, be willing to hear you speak to us, challenge us, shape us, so that we might live uh, obediently and lives that um, are are worthy of the calling that we receive. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So let's look at our first point. Entering his rest is received. Entering his rest is received. Now a lot happens in these two chapters, don't they? Right? From the preparation to the ark, to the priests, to the crossing and the miracle, the children's talk was really, really helpful to kind of put it all together. Um, and the memorializing the stones, right? There's so much that takes place. What's all of this for? What's all of this for? How do we, how do we summarize all of it? Well, uh, it's helpful that right at the end of these two chapters, Joshua actually gives a bit of a mini-sermon right, of sorts to the people that now that they've crossed over, um, he tells them exactly what they're meant to take away from all that took place that day for them. Right? Read what it says with me from Joshua 4, 21. It's on the screens. Hopefully you can see it there. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea. And he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful in it. And so that you might always fear the Lord your God. See, what is the point of all that takes place in these two chapters? What is the message of Joshua's mini-sermon? It's this. God did this. God did this. God did what they saw before the not them. Everything that takes place in these chapters points to that reality. Only God can get his people into the land of rest. It's his initiative. It's his promise. He calls the people. He brings them to the edge of the promised land. He's the one who will bring them over into the land of rest. It's his work, not theirs. It's in Joshua's word, it's the Lord God who dries up the Jordan River. Yeah? It's, he did this. 
And friends, just like something we've been wanting to purchase suddenly just seems to pop up everywhere we walk and go and, and, and look, right? once we see that this is really the key point of these two chapters, we'll see that every moment of this account shouts this point. Right? It shapes how we see this story. Right? Let's take the next little while to dive back into some of the details in these chapters. We can't look at everything, so we're going to focus on three. Yeah, the ark, the leader, the miracle. Yeah, the ark, the leader, the miracle. Now, Joshua begins the incredible morning by pointing people to the ark of the covenant. Yeah, the ark. Um, have a read of uh, the first four chapters of uh, first four verses of chapter three. Um, early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priests carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Um, it's been a little while since the Ark um, has been mentioned in the Bible at all, right? It's, it's barely mentioned in the last book in Deuteronomy. It hasn't appeared in Joshua up till now. But suddenly, when we reach these two chapters, chapters 3 and 4, the ark appears everywhere, right? It appears 17 times in just two chapters. Now, in this narrative form, if something is repeated like that, it's kind of like it's been underlined, highlighted, and bolded all at once, right? This is a pretty big deal in the story. Um, now, um, uh, what, what is the ark, right? We saw a picture of it in the kids' talk. It was a pretty cool golden-looking box. What is it? Now, um, I'm just going to summarize what it is for us, because um, uh, and I'm going to give you some references. I'm not going to have time to read through the references. I'll just mention them for you so that you can jot it down if you want to look at it later. But in these passages, we learn what the ark of the covenant is all about. Uh, the ark, which was constructed by Moses with God's very specific instructions back in Exodus 25, capture some really important truths about who God is symbolically. Yeah? So in Leviticus 16 verse, 2, 16, verse 2, Leviticus, we see that God says he will appear over the ark, which means the ark is a symbol of God's very presence. Now, in Numbers chapter 7, verse 89, Numbers 7, 89, uh, the Lord reveals himself and speaks to Moses from the ark. Right? That's why if you open the ark and if you were to look inside, there would be tablets there. Right? The treaty documents that God gave to the nation is there. Things that God spoke, in other words, to Moses back in Mount Sinai. See, the ark represented that God is not just a present God, but he is a speaking and revealing God. In Numbers 10, 35 to 36, Numbers 10, 35 to 36, the ark is a symbol that God, the speaking, revealing God, would stay true to what he spoke and revealed, right? So as the ark goes out and returns, Moses declares that God would do as he said he would do. So this ark, which represented the very moving presence of God, the God who reveals himself and speaks, who would hold true to the things that he has spoken, goes ahead of the people by a fair distance, right? 2,000 cubits, about 900 meters. It moves ahead of the people. Why does it do that? Well, the reason we're given is in verse 4. Have a look, verse 4. Why is, the, why is the ark ahead of them? So they will know which way to go, since they've never been this way before. See, friends, God, through the movement of the ark, is doing what? He is actually leading. He is leading his very people into this land of rest. And he goes before them a fair distance, nearly a kilometer, so that all three million or so of the Israelites standing at the shore might have a crystal clear panoramic display of all that God's going to do in front of them. 
They move as the ark moves. They follow where the ark leads. Because God is saying to them through the presence of the ark, I want you to stand back and I want you to watch. Right? The, the ongoing references to the ark from these chapters shouted us that it is God's very presence that leads his people into his land of rest. He's doing the work. The second detail from the ark, moving from the ark, is the leader. Right, The leader. Um, read verse, verses 7 to 9 in Joshua 3 with me. Um, and the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Joshua said to the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Now, um, a smaller theme in these two chapters is that God exalts Joshua, his appointed man. He tells him that he'll exalt him. And in chapter 4, verse 14, we see that exactly happens. Joshua is exalted in the sight of all Israel. Israel stands in awe of him all the days of his life, just like they did with Moses. Now, it's a pretty rare thing to be exalted like this. It only happens to a couple of other people. Uh, There's only two other people that are said to be exalted in this way. It's a short list of two, Abraham and King Solomon, before he um, has a downfall. So to be exalted like this is a pretty big deal. But if you stand back for just a second, have a think, right? What is it exactly that Joshua does that's worthy to exalt? What is it about what Joshua does that's worthy to exalt? What does he do that makes him worthy to be exalted like that, right? Does, does Joshua give a stirring speech? Does Joshua so, show profound military skills? Does Joshua lay out a vision and a strategy for their way through? He doesn't do any of those things. In fact, we just read what Joshua does. Right? After God speaks to him, Joshua pretty much, God speaks to him, and then he, Joshua turns around, and then he pretty much says, hey, come and listen to the words of the Lord. That's pretty much what he does over and over and over again in these two chapters. He hears a message, he turns around, and he retells it to the people who need to hear it. Not too different from a parrot, really. But that's why he's exalted. See, isn't this exactly the type of leader that God would want? It's the leader that's in awe of God that submits to His will, not the one who wants the awe and spotlight to be on Him or them. See, friends, even when Joshua is being exalted, it's not really about him. It's about God. Joshua is exalted because he passes on the very words of God and remains obedient because at the end of the day, it's not Joshua who brings the people into the land of rest. As important of a role as he's got, it's God. Which brings us to our third detail, the biggest of all, the most um, profound of all, the miracle. Yeah, the miracle. Now, I wonder as you were listening to the kids talk, as you were listening to Wendy read it, could you imagine what was taking place? Because I, th- I think um, if you were looking at it in your series this week, this account is actually really, really helpful in sprinkling um, like little details to help fuel our imaginations for what this epic miracle would have been like for those who saw it firsthand, right? Did you notice some of them? In verse 15 of chapter 3, there's this offhand comment that the time of the year that the Israelites crossed the Jordan River was when? The flood season. What did the Jordan River look like during flood season? Well, people who know this stuff reckon that the width of the point of the crossing from edge to edge during flood season, would have been well over two kilometers. 
The water's depths, as you began to walk in to the deeper parts of it, would have been over 10 feet, which to put into a little bit of perspective was taller than even the giant Goliath. Now, if that's not bad enough, because of the downward trajectory, the slope of the land, the floodwaters would be rushing downwards in a really strong current. So if they didn't immediately drown from how, how, how deep the water was, if they tried to cross themselves, they would have just surely been swept away by the water. Also, because the Jordan River goes to a large plain, it meant that when flood season kicked in, uh, the, the depth and the width of the waters would trap all this tangled bush and debris and jungle growth in the waters. And so you've got to imagine, right, this Jordan River at the moment of crossing during the flood season is when the wa- river's waters are a raging, wide, deep, and dangerous torrent. That's one little detail. We also see in chapter 3 and verses 12 and 16 that the waters are described as being piled up in a heap. Right? Stood up in a heap. We saw in the kids' video, it was like just pushed. Right? Why, is, why is it described like that? Because those phrases are used exactly to describe what God did back at the Red Sea. Right? We read in Exodus that the waters of the Red Sea also piled up in a heap, allowing the, the Israelites at that particular point to, to flee Egypt and to cross over. Right? And that's not a coincidence because in chapter 4, verse 19, there's a time reference, right? That this took place when? On the 10th day of the first month. Why is that there? Because that is a timestamp which marks this day as exactly 40 years since Israel first began preparing to leave the land of Egypt. See, what's the point of all these details that the waters are standing in a heap, that it was exactly at this particular time frame? It's because the generation of Israel would have known all this. It meant that everything that was taking place at the crossing of the Jordan would have prompted them to realize that God was doing for them what he did for their ancestors in Egypt exactly 40 years ago. This was their Red Sea moment. This was their miracle crossing moment. And we get a third little detail, right? We get a sense of how wide the crossing area was, right? In verse 16 of chapter 3, we're given some locations which tell us where the water cut off upstream to the Dead Sea, which would have left the passageway of about 32 kilometers, right? So the actual crossway through the river was about 32, was over 32 kilometers. And so the 3 million Israelites that are crossing this river are walking through this narrow sliver of an alleyway. They're crossing wide enough to see everything that's going on and crossing comfortably to the other side. Right? Are, you getting, are you beginning to get a sense of the wonder of what took place here? That's the wonder of this crossing. See, friends, why didn't God just give them instructions to build a bridge? He gave no instructions to build an ark. Surely he could have just told him to build a bridge or something. Why didn't God just you know, wait a few months? Right? The water would have been shallow enough to, at that point just to skip over. Right? Why wait until full flood when the waters are at its most dangerous, when the current is at its strongest, when the width of the river is at its widest, and when the depth of the water is at its deepest? Why time the miracle so precisely to be exactly 40 years after their forefathers left Egypt and make the waters stand as they did, like they did at the Red Sea? Why do the waters only begin to part in chapter 3, verse 17, at the very moment the priests who carry the ark's feet touch the water's edge? And why does it begin flooding all over again the moment the ark goes on dry ground? You know the reason. You know the answer. It's so that there is no doubt in anybody's mind that God was the one who brought them into the land of rest. That he made the impossible possible. 
that the only way they could enter this promised land of rest was through his supernatural power and presence. Friends, do you see? In the ark, in Joshua's exalting, and most clearly in this miracle, God is making that point that the only way the people can enter this rest is by receiving what he has done for them. Yeah? The only way the people of God can enter the land is if God's very presence were to go before them, making the waters stand in a heap so that they could cross over without being swept and crushed by it. There was no other way. And friends, the same is true for us today. If we want true rest, the only way we get it is to receive it. If we want to receive true rest, our eyes of faith need to see that centuries later, God would once again wade into the waters ahead of us. This time it wouldn't be symbolically through a golden wooden ark, but God would now be in very flesh, the Lord Jesus. This time he wouldn't make the waters stand in a heap. He would willingly allow the waters of sin and death to heap over him and crush him. And by being engulfed in the floods for us and in our place, the waters were dried. And he made a way for us to enter his rest, which is what's impossible for us to have. See, the only way to receive the true rest that's found only in God is to accept the words that Jesus says, Come to me. I will give you rest. The rest is given to us. We are to receive it. We read in Hebrews 4 that even though the people in Joshua's day, actually entered the land of rest, ultimately didn't last. Because if, re- if they really had rest, God wouldn't have said that there would be another day, a future day. The future day that speaks of the rest that Jesus now brings. Dear friends, you really can have true rest. From today even, if you choose to receive it. Many are restless because they've got a hunger in their heart, right? It could be a hungering for meaning, significance, security, maybe love. And Jesus says to those that are hungering, come to me. I am the bread of life. Feed on me and you'll never hunger again. You can have rest for your soul. Many are restless because their lives seem to be in constant darkness and despair. And Jesus says, come to me. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk into darkness, but will have the light of life. You can have rest. Many are restless because they fear death. To them, Jesus says, come to me. I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. You can have rest for your soul. Others are burdened by worry, anxiety, fear, and guilt. And to them, Jesus says, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened. And I will give you rest. But as good as the rest that we can have in the present, and those things are all the things that we can experience now in the present, as great as they are, the best is truly yet to come. The eternal rest of unspoiled love between us and God. Eternal rest from the cycle of failure and confession and trying again. Eternal rest from the pressure and opposition of our world. Eternal rest from sickness and death. Eternal rest from anything that stains life now. Just as the ancient people of God are given their rest by Him, it is only Jesus who can give us such wonderful rest. We only need to receive it. And so, dear friends, whether you have never received this gift or rest, or whether you have at one point or another, and for some reason um, you've just departed from it, would you receive the rest that Jesus offers to you? Because there's no 
other way. There's just simply no other way to heaven. You can't win it. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. You can't add to it. To borrow the words of a famous hymn, it was grace that brought me thus far. And it is grace that will lead me home. Um, let's move to our second point, and it's a shorter point. Uh, remaining in his rest needs remembering. Yeah, Remaining in his rest needs remembering. Um, that's really what all of chapter 4 is about. Yeah. Um, now that they're in the land of rest, the ancient people of God need to remember for generations to come what took place at the River Jordan. Now, again, for the sake of time, we're not going to read through all of chapter 4. But to summarize, after crossing the Jordan, Joshua tells the 12 men that they are already chosen back in chapter 3 to go back into the river. Now, I wonder if you can imagine being one of those men, right? They've just bolted through between these giant walls of water that have been held back by God. And now Joshua says, hey, gents, can you go back? Um, Go back to the middle um, where the priests and the archive get some large stones to build a monument uh, so that we can remember today for future generations, right? be pretty sucky to have that job. But just as Joshua does what God says, these men do what Joshua says. Now, people, um, smarter people than me, argue that uh, whether there's one monument of 12 stones or two monuments of that each have 12 stones, one in one location in Gilgal where they end up camping, another maybe in the River Jordan where um, Joshua assembles in chapter 4 verse 9 where the priests actually stood. Uh, presumably so that when the flood season was over, you could still see the monument in the river. Um, It's hard to tell. I I lean towards there being two. But whatever the case, right, the purpose of those stones, the purpose of the monument, whether it's one or two, can't be argued. The purpose of these stones is for what? It's for remembrance. Not just for the present generation for years to come, but more importantly for the future generations that that weren't there when God led them into the land of rest. Uh, Let's read again from chapter 4, verse 19, to the end of the chapter. Uh, On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones that they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, In the future, when your descendants ask their parents, What do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. See, friends, why does God make such a big deal of these stones? Why is it so important to give so much detail about these stones immediately after such an incredible miracle of God, right? These stones almost get as much airtime as the actual miracle itself. Why why does God do that? Why is this here? Here's why. It's because God knows that forgetfulness has devastating consequences for his people. God knows that forgetfulness has devastating consequences for his people. We all know how devastating forgetfulness can be, don't we? At its most devastating, there's the impacts of dementia and Alzheimer's. That destroys all ability of someone to remember and recall. It was truly devastating seeing my grandma unable to remember her own children's names and being frightened seeing me every 20 minutes because there was a stranger staying in her home in Hong Kong. But forgetfulness isn't just devastating when it's disease and illness, right? Many relationships, marriages have fallen apart, not necessarily because of unfaithfulness or some big blow up, but by simply forgetting over extended periods of time to say thank you when a thank you is merited. Forgetting to say sorry when an apology is in order. 
forgetting how precious the other person is and taking them for granted. See, forgetfulness can be devastating, can't it? And it's no different when it comes to God. And the fantastic thing that we see in this chapter is in the kindness of God, he understands both how devastating forgetfulness can be, but also how likely we are on our own to forget. And he gets that. See, God could have easily just said to Joshua, hey, what I did among you was pretty unforgettable, wasn't it? Well, um, that's great. Let's move on now. We're done. Moving, Moving on into the land. But God doesn't do that. Because he knows just how crucial it is for the people of God to stop, to mark down what took place, to have something tangible to recall it to mind, and to tell future generations of what took place. God is kind to know that we are often feeble-hearted and fuzzy-headed when it comes to what we see in verse 24 of chapter 4, recalling just how powerful he is. And just how much he should be revered and feared. God is wise to know that we need prompts and reminders of these incredible one-off events in history to look back to. Like the Israelites in Joshua 3-4, we need to remember where we now stand. The Israelites were now on the other side. Their feet now stood in the promised land of rest. And they were there because of what God did for them. And friends, if we've received the rest that Jesus gives, it means what? That we have crossed over. It means that now we are in God's rest, whether we feel like it or not. It means we are in God's rest, whether we access the benefits of being in that rest regularly or not. It means we are in God's rest, even though the best of that rest is still yet to come. See, without these regular reminders, we'll end up walking and living in a kind of like spiritual amnesia. Believing faintly, and but forgetting it in the moments where we really need to bring it to mind. We need to be reminded regularly of what God has done for us, because without it, we're going to begin to doubt. We need to be reminded about God's love for us, because circumstances of life can be so painful and disappointing, can't they? We need to be reminded that Jesus' death fully deals with sin, past, present, and future, because we stuff up and botch things up daily and so badly that it can be hard to believe that God would ever forgive someone who gets it wrong as much as we might. We need to be reminded that His Spirit lives in us, that we've entered His rest, and just because often we feel so ordinary and following Jesus seems so hard. We regularly need those reminders. We regularly need those prompts. And so how do do we make sure that we're remembering well? How do we make sure that we're getting those prompts? Well, I mean, one one thing is, isn't that why coming together on a Sunday is so important? As we come, what are we doing? We are remembering His faithfulness. We are calling to mind what He has done. We are remembering the rest that we've been given and where we are going as people who have now entered His rest. And we get to do that together as we sing, as we pray, as we confess, as we hear God's word in a way that probably at no other point in the week we get to do. Once a month, we'll take some bread and we'll sip on some juice when we take the Lord's Supper to recall with our senses of taste and smell and touch where we now stand because of Jesus. Where we tend to forget The regular rhythms of gathering together just on a Sunday can play a big part for our remembrance. 
to recall who God is and who we are. So church, Sunday is big, a big deal for our remembrance. But friends, can I ask you one more thing? How are you prompting yourself outside of the Sunday gathering? How are you storing up the things that you need to recall? How are you meditating and calling to mind the things that you need to remember routinely through your week? See, if you're anything like Jody and I, um, <clears throat> just thinking about our home for a second, there are levels at our place of how well we store things at home. Right? Things in the kitchen tend to be stored pretty well. We know where things are generally. Uh, we know where things are. We're not going to get lost there. My bookshelf is fairly well organized, so I know where to go uh, when I need to find something. But the garage, the shed, right? I'd have to really rummage to find exactly what I'm looking for. It's just too cluttered to remember where everything is. And I fear that for many of us, including myself, when the rubber truly hits the road, when we really, really need those prompts of what we need to recall, I reckon most of us would find it difficult to recall because of all the clutter. Uh, I want to suggest to you one thing that was recommended to me. It might not be for you. Um, uh, it might not be useful for everybody, but it might be useful to some of you, which is why I'm bringing it up today. Um, to help with our remembering and calling outside of a Sunday. Um, uh, I don't know if you can see this. There is a table here um, with five columns. Right? You, can, you can draw this in a notebook. You can put it on a Google sheet if you wanted to. Right? These are just categories, headings that are on top. Right? You've, got, you've got a sinful event, uh, why, an untruth about God or yourself, consequences and then repent, and truth asking God to teach you. See, um, what's the point of this? Um, it's so that when you notice something in your life, something specific in your life that you regularly struggle with, uh, you can use something like this table as a bit of a framework for you to recall and remember. Right? For example, and I'm not thinking about anybody in particular, under sinful event, you might realize, for example, that you are um, jealous of a friend. That you are jealous of a friend. You realize that happens more often than you'd like, uh, and you realize that that is a bit of an ongoing struggle for you. And so you move on to the why. Right? Give a reason for that struggle. Right? Why is it that you are jealous in this particular moment? Well, it could be that she has a partner now and you don't. Maybe. Right? It could be a bunch of other reasons, right? And as you reflect further, uh, you move to, well, uh, under, under the untruth about God and myself, think hard about that struggle. What does it reveal about what you believe about yourself or God that is just untrue, right? So, for example, I've got there, it could be that you now think that, you think that God is unfair, that, that he is withholding good from you. Right? So that's the untruth that you are telling yourself um, in that sinful event. Now, under the next column, under consequences, repent. You could take some time to think about the consequences of if you were to hold on to that untruth, right? Recall that Jesus died exactly for those consequences and then repent. So again, in this example, um, um, after reflecting, it could be that you realize the consequences of, being that, of, of, of thinking that God is unfair and withholding good from you is a, a stubborn refusal to believe in his goodness. Right? Um, but you've got to remember that Jesus died for that refusal. And so you have an opportunity now to repent. And then under the final headings, truth, um, ask God to teach you, we can ask God. Or maybe we can ask another believer to reveal the truth that contradicts that untruth. Right? The truth that needs to contradict the lie so that it convicts and reminds and lifts the burden of unbelief and brings the light. 
Right? So in this example, it might be that um, God is good. That's the truth. And loving. And all I need is Him. And then you spend time praying that through and, and speaking about that with other people. Now, if you were to do something like this, it doesn't have to be exactly this, whatever is most helpful for you. If you were to do something like this a few times a month, eventually what you're going to have is you're going to have a long list of memories. You're going to have a long list of recollections for you to look back on. It might be a filled notebook. I've got friends that have filled notebooks of this stuff. It could be a really, really massive spreadsheet. I don't know, right? Just full of prompts and reminders of truths that have been applied now to you. It's just a suggestion, but perhaps it could be a helpful tool for you. Friends, as we close, I get the band to come up. Everything in chapters 3 and 4 prove what we know to be true. That true rest really is hard to come by. In fact, it takes no less than the miraculous intervention of God to bring it about. We see that here in Joshua 3 to 4, but we see it even more clearly in the rest the Lord Jesus came to bring. And so, dear friends, would you receive? Would you remember? Because it's only then that we enter and remain in the rest that's found in you and him. Uh, the band's going to lead us uh, in a time of response.